0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now, the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We have talked in this program in past months about how every so often we are so backlogged that we have to produce a special show. Won't necessarily air on the local airwaves. Today is one such show. Since we're not even sure what day we're going to get this up, we can't very well do on this date in history now, can we? I do hate to dispense with at least a quote of the day and a joke, though. So let's do a quote of the day. This one comes from former Republican senatorial candidate Carly Fiorina, who's making noise about running for president. Said Fiorina, the highest calling of leadership is to unlock the potential of others. We would like to contrast that with Carly Fiorina's Wikipedia entry, which does note that she got a $20 million severance package when she left HP. Said Wikipedia, judgments on Fiorina's tenure at HP are mixed. In 2008, InfoWorld grouped her with a list of products and ideas as flops, declaring her to be the anti-Steve Jobs for reversing the goodwill of American engineers and for alienating existing customers. Well, that sounds like presidential timber to us. And our joke of the day is, what's the difference between a lawyer and a trampoline? The answer? Well, you take off your boots to jump on a trampoline. All right, we have a pile of material that uh, was amassed in 2014 that we need to just de-bulk for the next for the next 58 minutes. Let's start with some pronouncements of comedian Chris Rock. Frank Rich in New York Magazine quoted Rock last month as saying that he thinks young audiences have become too politically correct. And it's one of the reasons that he now hates performing at colleges. Said Rock, the students are just way too conservative, not in their political views, but in their willingness not to offend anybody. Kids raised in a culture of, we're not going to keep scoring the game because we don't want anyone to lose, or just ignoring race to a fault. I mean, you can't say, that black kid over there. No, it's the guy with the red shoes. It's apparently also why Chris Rock wants to ban cell phones from his stand-up gigs, especially ones where he's testing out new, potentially controversial material. Before everyone had a recording device and was wired like effing Sammy the Bull, you'd say something that went too far and you'd go, oh, I went too far, and you'd brush it off. But today, says Rock, audience members record his demo gigs on their smartphones and immediately post the edgiest material online. It can get real messy, said Rock. It's going to lead to safer stand-up, but you can't think the thoughts you want to think if you think you're being watched. Well, we would note that stand-up comedians kind of by definition are being watched and listened to. But we think we know what he's talking about. It's not a trend we applaud. Something else we don't applaud is what happened down in Australia last year. Australia had been on the cutting edge of trying to institute a carbon tax, something which is probably going to be the only thing to save the world from global warming. But a new conservative government tossed that out the window. Noted new scientists, the Australian government clouched with scientists almost immediately when it dramatically switched strategy on climate change, including the dumping of the nation's emissions trading scheme. Now the prime minister, Tony Abbott, has cut the science minister's post, saying education and industry can pick up the slack. This could turn out to be not only bad news for climate change, but also big science efforts like the Square Kilometer Array Telescope, which was contemplated for construction down under. And yes, by the way, we do have an Australian correspondent on this program. She has been quite preoccupied with her new baby. But hopefully in the months to come, Pamela Taylor will return to our uh, our show to give us the skinny on what's going on down there in the Southern Hemisphere. And here's a sad brief item from the Northern Hemisphere, which is that as fuel prices have dropped, which they've now done to an average of less than $3 a gallon here in the U.S., Purchases of pickups, SUVs, and other light-duty trucks have risen 9% this year. Do we really need more SUVs on the highway? Well, I think we know the answer to that, don't we? Here's a story we intend to come back to, and we will right now by mentioning again, but we need to bring an ophthalmologist on this program to talk about this item, which is that cases of myopia or nearsightedness have rocketed as children across the world spend more time indoors staring at computer screens. One quarter of the world's population, or 1.6 billion people, now has this condition, nearsightedness. Experts predict that by 2020, one in three people will be nearsighted. We need to talk about this. And the fact which we mentioned in passing last year that a very sad milestone was reached, when the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, which measures carbon dioxide in our atmosphere, exceeded 400 parts per million for a full month. Everyone seems to agree that for global warming to be stabilized at under 2 degrees Celsius, that the atmospheric CO2 has got to stabilize at about 400 parts per million. But uh, no one seems to be sure how we're going to do that. I know what the Republicans... uh, completely take over the government in 2016. There's no chance we're going to do anything here domestically about it. And in 2015, we're going to take a look at this controversy over salt. Yes, salt. We've been told for years that we really need to keep our intake of salt less than 1,500 milligrams or less per day. But uh, some new reports that came out recently suggest that uh, reducing our sodium intake below 2,300 milligrams a day might backfire these studies need to be looked at. In one case, uh, patients who were hospitalized for congestive heart failure uh, found that those who consumed 1,800 milligrams of sodium daily were twice as likely to die during the study period as patients who took in 2,700 milligrams. It seems clear that a simple-minded approach of just reducing our salt may not be all it's cracked up to be. Research will continue. Let's take a turn into some good news items. We do have a pile of small pile of of items that we consider to be pretty unadulterated good news. Let's start with the blurb here, heralding the fact that the complete Batman TV series is now out. I mention this because I did buy it, I have been watching it, and I've been laughing pretty hard. I know some folks didn't get how funny that show was, and even worse, some people were openly hostile to the idea of a campy version of Batman and Robin. Is my fond hope that somewhere along the way, they will get a life. And here's an item that, well, I guess it's not exactly good news, but I don't know, maybe it is. You, you make the call, dear listener. A recent piece by Stephen Mim in the New York Times noted that things are getting hairy up in the executive suites, noting that for the first time in well over a century, a growing number of the world's business leaders are sporting facial hair. These include Google's co-founder Sergey Brin, Goldman Sachs' CEO Lloyd Blankenfeld, we should put Goldman Sachs CEO and criminal, Lloyd Blankenfeld, and Mark Benioff, the billionaire founder of Salesforce. Now, according to this piece in the New York Times, historically, beards in the boardroom have appeared only when capitalism has, quote, assumed a more swashbuckling individualistic persona, unquote, such as in the era of the robber barons. They saw themselves as anti-conformists who single-handedly built vast empires. Then, for decades, beards were identified with labor radicals and leftist politics, noting that faceless corporations define economic life and facial hair waned. But today, scruffy capitalism has returned, thanks in part to the entrepreneurial swagger of many tech and finance titans. And how about this one? Thanks to the, uh, the efforts of the good people at the European Space Agency, we now know what comets smell like. What does a comet smell like, you ask? Well. Turns out, pretty awful. The European Space Agency's Rosetta probe, which was sniffing around, comet 67P, concluded that the chemicals being exuded would come out like a mix of rotten eggs, cat pee, and bitter almonds. Mmm. Scientists are interpreting that the, this bad smell as great news because the molecules behind those odors, hydrogen sulfide, ammonia, and hydrogen cyanide, respectively, are mixed in with the water, ice, and frozen carbon dioxide in the comet, which makes for some kind of cool chemistry out there in the deep... which makes for some cool chemistry out in deep space. The feeling is that when the, when the icy comet heats up getting closer to the sun, that uh, the orbiting probe should be able to pick up yet more complex molecules, which does frankly remind me of a headline in the Journal of Irreproducible Results a couple decades ago which was in the line of uh, the scientists always finding different molecules out in deep space. The headline was along the lines of latest molecule discovered in space, mescaline. Of course, the joke was on the headline writers. They later, they later discovered enough ethanol out <laughs> in space to fill the Earth's oceans something like, I don't know, a thousand times over, a million times over, with some large amount of ethanol. And if that term is not ringing a bell for you, let's just instead refer to it as vodka because we're pretty sure there was some water mixed in with the ethanol. And here's a good news story that I just can't resist. Who hasn't contemplated going bicycle riding out in the snow? Yeah, I never thought of it either, but apparently some people out in Michigan did. And they've developed the cousin to the mountain bike. They're calling them fat bikes. They have tires twice as wide as um, those found in mountain bikes, with about one-third the air pressure, which I I guess allows you to have a slow and steady ride across the snow. Apparently up in Michigan's Upper Peninsula, they've now expanded some uh, cross-country ski trails to include a 15-mile snow bike trail. It's considered one of the best in the country. I don't know if this has caught on in California yet, but, you know, let's keep our eyes peeled. This sounds interesting. And one thing we, I'm sure, now, one thing I'm sure we've never done on this program previously is uh, report on a letter to the editor from someone from the National Speleological Society. But apparently in response to a piece in Discover Magazine about uh, the quietest places in the world, John H. Hall Jr., apparently a spelunker, wrote to say that uh, he could take the author of that piece to places underground in caves where it's so quiet that not only can one hear one's heart beating, One can hear the blood coursing through one's arteries and veins. Hall noted that the quietest places in caves are low, tunnel-like passages where there's little space between you and the surrounding rock. And while we're not excited about the idea of jamming yourself into a little space between you and the surrounding rock, we are intrigued by the fact that you might be able to hear the blood coursing through your arteries and veins. This reminds us that we promised to go to Mammoth Cave a couple years ago in this program, have not yet done so, but uh, hopefully this spring. And Mr. Mimberland points out that this does give us a chance to, uh, to go to the N-echoic chamber that they have at UC Davis and see if that will be quiet enough to hear the blood pumping through our arteries. I know that uh, that research uh, area is made an attraction during picnic day where you can go in and realize how bloody quiet it is when there's no sound reflecting off walls. And, of course, as a sound engineer, this interests him very much. Okay, we'll get around to it this year. You know, at this point, we might just want to call this whole hour the forward-promoting hour, <laughs> what we're going to do in 2015. But no, 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 we're, it won't all be that. For example, we plan to do no follow-up whatsoever on any stories related to Kim Kardashian. Although we would include among our good news items this piece. According to the Wall Street Journal, although Kim Kardashian hoped to, quote, break the internet, unquote, with her nude shoot for Paper Magazine, it turns out the landing of the Philae probe on Comet 67P generated more posts on Twitter. Over a 24-hour period, if you're keeping score, 479,000 people tweeted about the comet landing, while just 308,000 people tweeted about Kardashian's ass. And you know, in 12 years of doing this show, I'm not sure whether we've, m- we've mentioned barley even once. But we now rectify that situation. Curious science item from last November notes that uh, the roof of the world, i.e., Tibet, is not exactly where you might expect to see waving fields of barley, but it's now believed that it was this crop that led humans to colonize the Tibetan plateau about 3,600 years ago. This comes from archaeological evidence, including handprints. Found 4.2 kilometers above sea level. No, I have to stop right there. This is from New Scientist. You know, no one's going to relate to so many kilometers above sea level. They meant to say 2,600 feet. And yes, we admit it. We are not complete and total advocates of the metric system. If Mr. McMillan wants a pint of beer, he wants a pint of beer. And if I want to know what the temperature tomorrow is going to be, I want to know what it's going to be in Fahrenheit, okay? And you kids get off of my lawn. Anyway, rate, back to the story. It turns out that archaeologists found millet being farmed at lower altitudes in Tibet, but by about 3,600 years ago, there was a shift to farming barley, which is resistant to frost. Pretty cold in the Tibetan Plateau. If you plan to go there, dress warmly. And you know, come to think of it, when I was in Nepal many years ago, we they did have yak stew, and I'm pretty sure there was quite a bit of barley in it. All right, here's another science item we've been hanging on to that I just think is fascinating, and uh, hopefully you will too. This has to do with uh, a study published in Nature of an experiment conducted by Lucy Applin of Oxford University conducted in nearby Witham Wood. This was a study of great tits. Great tits, as all ornithologists know, are very enterprising birds. To quote from The Economist, In the days when milk was delivered each morning to the doorstep of almost every house in Britain, enterprising great tits sometimes learned to peck through the foil bottle tops to get at the goodies beneath. These avian pioneers were quickly imitated by others, with the result that cream pillaging populations emerged in several parts of the country. Cream pillaging was one of the first recognized examples of animal culture the transmission of behavior from one individual to another so that it persists down the generations. But, oddly, notes the magazine, the study was never followed up experimentally in the wild to understand the nuances of the process. And, of course, this brings us to the study published this year. Now, it turns out that in Witham Wood, most of the great tits are known individually and are fitted with transponders so that they can be followed around. Dr. Applin was thus able to track in some detail how behavior spreads and and also how tits, like people, often seem pressed into social conformity. Now in an experiment, instead of using milk, they trained a couple of birds to to take tasty mealworms from cleverly devised boxes. Each box had a sliding door on the front painted blue on the left, red on the right. Opening it either way would yield the worm, but the captured tits did not know this. What they did was take these couple of birds they'd trained, open it one way or the other, and then demonstrate the technique of getting the mealworm out of the box to these wild birds. And as you might anticipate, since we're talking about the passing of culture, birds that observed the box opening one way spread through example That behavior through their population, birds taught to open it the other way, did the opposite with their population. And after studying the populations out in the wild, they concluded that yes, the way the boxes were opened depended almost always on the method introduced by the males that were originally trained, and which then provided the demonstrations to the other birds. And in a couple of twists to this, they took the boxes away waited enough time for a lot of the birds to die and be replaced by younger birds, and then put them back out in the woods. And they found that enough tits in each area remembered the old days well enough to raid the boxes, enabling others to learn how to do it. Secondly, the tradition of whether to open the box to the left or the right got preserved. But third, and perhaps most interesting, the tits that had moved, as some did, from one area to an area with a different tradition of opening the boxes, then changed their behavior to conform with the local practice. So, we can see from this experiment that social conformity is not confined to human beings. It is, in fact, something you will also find if you take the time to examine great tits. Moving right along, and let's close with an item that could be thought of as bad news, but actually is not. Killing wildlife can be a good thing. If the wildlife consists of introduced rats, and you're talking about South Georgia Island, off the Antarctic coast. To quote from The Economist, by the middle of 2015, South Georgia should be reborn, free of the millions of rats that have ravaged its rare wildlife for 240 years since Captain Cook landed there with some unwanted rodent passengers. Team Rat, an 18-strong group of scientists, pilots, and engineers, intend to kill off every last rat on this 100-mile-long mountainous sub-Antarctic island using... 50 million pellets of poisonous bait dropped with great precision from three helicopters. It's been noted that other islands have been cleared of rats, but the biggest of them, Macquarie Island, southeast of Tasmania, is only one-tenth the size of South Georgia. They note that if eradication on this enormous scale can be achieved, it will inspire others in many places around the world where invasive species have wreaked havoc on ecosystems. Now, South Georgia is a British overseas territory. It lies 850 miles east of the Falkland Islands, and it's inhabited only in summer by visiting researchers. And it is hoped that this correspondent will be able to pay a visit to that part of the world in the next year or two. If all goes well, thankfully I won't have to pack any rat traps. Of course, we do want to note by way of a that far and away the worst invader to South Georgia were, were humans. Ever since Captain Cook sent back reports of abundant seals and whales down there, well, bad things happened. The first seals were wiped out within 50 years. More than 100,000 were killed in a single summer in the late 18th century. Then in the early 20th century, whalers set up bases on the island, and in 60 years, they harpooned over 175,000 whales. Ouch. And while those slaughters were going on, those escaped rats undertook another wipeout of the population, eating their way through the birds. Bird survivors were left only on offshore islands that the rats couldn't reach. We want to close by noting that thanks to strict regulations governing hunting, the island's fur seals are back in large numbers alongside enormous elephant seals. Whales are again cruising the waters offshore, and now if all goes well, maybe the bird populations can come back too. All right, let's take a short break. You are listening to an internet version of Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. we got plenty more. Don't go away. And I think we have an appropriate announcement for you at this point. Hi, this is James Brown, soul brother number one, always fighting. Now I'm fighting for your life. I'm fighting for your life because if you use drugs, you better leave it alone. Drugs are contagious. They're killers. Every drug is a killer. Stay away from drugs. Drugs will take your life away. And if you want to live, stay away from drugs because they are... Super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad.